Bible in front of you, which I'm sure you do, if you could please uh, turn with me to that portion of scripture that we read earlier on. Um, So we're looking at Genesis chapter 9, Genesis chapter 9. Okay, so today is an exciting day. Today is an exciting day. You see, for the last uh, couple of months or so, everything with the congregation, I suppose, has been a wee bit, uh, what will we say, disjointed. It's been a wee bit higgledy-piggledy. Some people have been away, some people have been away on holiday, or some people have been away home to, to other parts of the globe. But today, things are a bit different. Today we are back together again as a congregation. And because of that, we should be excited. You see, we're back together again, but we've got stuff to do. You see, our mentoring program is what would you say, slowly but surely getting off the ground. And our 20s and 30s group has got a a program of events and discipleship. You know, we're working together to try and publicise the congregation, try and publicise the services here. We've got a city out there, a city that we need to tell of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're back together again. We are ready to serve the Lord. So it is an exciting day. And with that in mind, it's most appropriate this morning, <coughs> excuse me, that we come to a passage of scripture that really it strikes at the heart of our identity, doesn't it? You know, it's a passage of scripture that strikes at the heart of how a reformed and evangelical congregation reads and understands the Bible because this passage of scripture is a passage of scripture that deals with covenant. Covenant. So before I go on, do we all know What is meant by a biblical covenant? We do, don't we? We've seen this a couple of times in the book of Genesis already. Get this, otherwise there's no point in in us carrying on. What is a biblical covenant? Well, a covenant's an agreement, isn't it? It is a, a treaty. It is a bond. It is a bond that is instituted by God. It is a bond between God and man. And it is a bond, an agreement where God promises to pour out blessing upon blessing on mankind. As long as man adheres to the stipulations of the covenant. And that's what we've got here in Genesis chapter 9, don't we? We have got a covenant and we have got God's covenant with Noah. Okay, so let's, folks, let's examine this, Genesis chapter 9, under a few headings. And let's consider, firstly, our, our first point here, and it is 
Point one, the requirements of the covenant. The requirements of the covenant. Or if you like, what we're doing in our first point is looking at man's side of the deal. You know, we're looking at what man has to do in this covenant. So, point one, the requirements of the covenant. (coughs) And as we've opened our Bibles, and as we've looked at uh, the first few verses of Genesis 9, really what we've got to be thinking about, and what we've got to be picturing just now, is is the image of Noah as a second Adam. That's what we've got to be thinking about. Noah as a second Adam. Because think about it, you know. Noah is standing here at the start of this newly created almost earth. You've got Noah, just like Adam was, you've got, you've got Noah standing as man's representative before God, don't you? It's Noah as a, as, as a second Adam. And, and Scripture really sort of brings, this right, brings it out right from the start. Just have a look. If your Bibles are open, just have a look at verse 1. Look at verse 1. What do we have? <coughs> We've got there an almost, uh, what's the word, verbatim, verbatim, uh, almost word-for-word word repeat of the, the commission that God gave Adam in Genesis 1, don't we? A word-for-word word repeat of the commission that God gave, gave Adam. See what it says in verse 1. It says, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Surely, when we read that, you know, the... The recognition's there. It's very similar to what God said to Adam in Genesis 1. But note this. The commission that God gave Adam in Genesis 1, it was given into a pristine world, wasn't it? It was given into a, a A perfect world. The Garden of Eden. Whereas this commission in Genesis 9 is not. It's given into a sinful world. A fallen world. A sin-scarred world. And therefore, friends, there are a couple of differences to the commission that God gives here. Do you see what the couple of differences are here? What are they? Well, instead of the command in Genesis 1 for Adam, can you, can you remember what, what God said? He said, he told Adam to, to rule over the animals, didn't he? You know, to have dominion, to rule over the animals. Well, that's not what he says to Noah, is it? Look at verse 2. He says... Fill the earth, and then he says this. He says, the fear and dread of you will fall upon all the animals. So, unlike Adam, and because of sin, what's going to happen? 
Well, fear, fear of mankind is going to kind of try, you know, envelop, is going to cover over all of the animal kingdom. That's what we're told. Why? Why this fear? Well, maybe a second difference in the commission gives us a reason. Because look what we're also told here. We are told of a change of diet for mankind, don't we? A change of diet. Do you see that? There's this, there's this lifting of restrictions in what man can eat. In Genesis 9, God says to man, Okay, man, now you can hunt. You can go out and kill. You can eat anything you want. With one exception. What's the exception? That man doesn't eat any meat that has blood still within it. So at the start here, what we've got to see is that there is... As part of this covenant with Noah, there is a commission that God gives Noah, but there's differences in the commission. There is differences with fear, and there is differences with food. Now, um, folks, I read uh, (coughs) a remarkable statistic um, this week. And I know statistics are dangerous. And uh, this is an old statistic, so it might not actually be the case today. But at the time of writing, in the state of Illinois, get this, there had been more people on death row released because their convictions had been quashed than there were people or than there were people on death row who had been executed. I'll say that again. There had been more people in death row released because their convictions were proved to be unsound than there were people on death row who had been executed. And that takes us, it takes us into a crucial area of this covenant with Noah. Because folks, do you see it? Genesis moves. And it moves into a new covenant stipulation. And it moves from the killing of animals for food into the killing of human beings for murder. And we are brought to the issue of capital punishment. And because this is a a tricky issue, isn't it? You know, this is a complicated issue. This is an emotive topic. And because of that, friends, I want us just to camp out here just for a minute or two. And to ask just a couple of questions about this law here. That if we take the life of a fellow human being, that our life is to be demanded from us.
So just a couple of questions on this. One. Why here? Seriously, why here? Why does God introduce this this new law? A life for a life. Why Genesis chapter 9? Well, think about the, the background to what we've got here. What has just happened? What has Genesis 6, 7, and 8 all been about? Well, we've seen God act in judgment. We've seen the flood, haven't we? Now, why did that happen? It happened because of violence. It happened because of murder. It happened because of blood vendettas such as Cain's. So what happens now? What happens at the beginning of this sort of newly constituted earth? Well, God acts. And he acts to warn against a similar descent into violence, doesn't he? God acts and he acts to point out that there will be consequences for the murder of fellow human beings. So that is why here. Second question. Ready for this? What's the biblical reasoning here behind capital punishment? You know, why why here in Genesis 9 is there such a, a heavy, a heavy penalty for taking the life of another person? Why such a heavy penalty? Okay, we've all heard, I'm sure, the arguments on either side of this debate, haven't we? And some opponents, opponents of the death penalty, they would argue that capital punishment cheapens human life. Yes? You know, we've heard that before. You know, that if we are willing to send somebody to the chair, to see somebody executed, then that means that we don't value human life as we should. Well, can I tell you, Can I show you, please, that that is the opposite of the biblical logic that is on display in Genesis chapter 9. That is the opposite. It couldn't be further from the truth. Because here, what is happening is God is saying that he must, he absolutely must demand a life for a life precisely because human life is so precious and valuable because look what we're told we're back to that thing we've looked at so often that man is made in the image of God that human life is made in the image of our creator therefore it is valuable therefore it is it's so significant human life is, is precious and it is so precious that it has to be preserved at all costs Hence, the establishment of such a a, a significant punishment here. And then thirdly, we've seen seen why. We've seen why here. But there's a question you're asking. I hope there's a question you're asking. Is this law 
still applicable. Is what we're seeing here about capital punishment in Genesis 9, is this still to be adhered to? Well, some would say no. Of course not. They would say that the Mosaic law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They would say that a new law of love exists in Jesus Christ. They would say that this, of course, has been superseded. They would say, look at the Ten Commandments, you know. You shall not murder. But hang on. Think about this. Think about the fact that this is not a Mosaic law. You know, this is way before Mosaic laws. This is before Israel is even in existence in some ways. You know, this reads almost like a creation ordinance for this newly constituted earth, doesn't it? And yet, yeah, of course, the Ten Commandments say, you know, don't, don't kill, don't murder. Not all killing is murder, is it? Not all killing is murder. And this here, this is God's considered act of, of, of justice, isn't it? And then consider what, what Paul says in the New Testament. The New Testament in Romans 13. There he clearly states... The authorities have the power to implement God's sword of justice. Paul, in the New Testament, he clearly expects authorities and governments to to enact the death penalty. Folks, you see, when we examine this stuff, what, what becomes clear is that the Bible allows for capital punishment. It allows for it. It permits the death penalty. The problem, of course, is when fallen and sinful governments and authorities try to implement this. Now, is this an issue for you? Is the issue of capital punishment a problem? Does it kind of go against every fiber, every ounce of your, your humanity this morning? Does it? Well, if it does, can I just please emphasize the basics here? This covenant exists so that God can bless humanity. This isn't about tyranny. And this is not in any way about brutality. This exists to ensure that we take the sanctity of human life very seriously indeed. The requirements.
of the covenant. Okay, so we have seen man's side of the covenant. You know, we've seen what man has to do, the requirements, the demands on man. Let's look at the promises that that God makes. Okay, the other side of the covenant, if you'll allow this. Let's consider the blessings of the covenant. The blessings of the covenant. Okay, now, in pretty much every town and city in the UK, we now have gay areas. Gay quarters are springing up in every part of uh, of the UK and every town and city. In London, I don't know where they are. In London, it might be Shoreditch, it might be Soho, I don't know. But how are these uh, these clubs, how are these gay bars to be recognised? Well, there's usually a, a sign or a flag outside clubs. What's on these flags? Well, the badge of homosexuality, the marker to recognise these places is the sign of a rainbow, isn't it? The sign of a rainbow. But as we sort of move forward in this chapter in Genesis chapter 9, what happens is that we come to the, the, the true and the real meaning of a rainbow. The rainbow is not a sign of immorality. The rainbow is the sign of God's covenant with Noah. Now what does that mean? A sign of the covenant. Well, each of the the covenants in Scripture has an associated sign that goes along with it. You know, think about it. We've got a circumcision, don't we, as the, the sign of God's covenant with Abraham. We've got baptism. We've got the Lord's Supper. They're an associated sign with God's covenant of grace. And here, what do we have? With God's covenant with Noah, we have got a rainbow. Now get this, please. The covenant sign was something that provided a vivid illustration. The covenant sign is something that provides a picture of the content of God's promise in the covenant. So, what does a rainbow tell us? So we looked at a rainbow. What do we learn about this covenant? Well, if you take uh, rain out of the word rainbow, what are you left with? You're left with bow. This is not rocket science, is it? But it's important. Because in Hebrew, that word bow is the same word as the bow in a bow and arrow. And you see, scholars will tell us that in the ancient Near East, there was a common feature in the art of the time. Stick with me on this. You know, in the art, when a warrior 
was pictured as being sort of victorious. You know, you get a picture of a warrior being triumphant and, and promoting peace. He would be shown with a bow and a bow and arrow to his side. Picture it. The bow to his side with the curved part of the bow facing up. That's a picture of peace. And these same scholars, they will tell us that that is exactly, that is also what we've got here with this rainbow. So what we've got is God. You know, we've got the great judge. We've got, in a rainbow, the the, the great conqueror of evil. And he has got by his side, if you will, his bow. In this beautiful picture of, of preservation, this beautiful picture of peace. But think about it, that fits, doesn't it? That fits with the, with, the, with the content of what he promises in the covenant. What does he promise here? What does he promise Noah? He promises that he will never again flood the earth. He promises this time of preservation. So friends, what we've got here in Genesis 9 is not so much a promise that if we don't adhere to the requirements of the covenant that God's going to come in and he's going to flood the earth. That's not it. What we've got here is a promise that if we cherish the sanctity of human life, that we will experience blessing after blessing in God's new age of preservation. And consider consider the power of God that's on display here in Genesis 9. Is it not remarkable? You know that at any time that God chooses that he can align and arrange, you know, atoms, molecules, particles to display this 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 perfect display of color and light across the skies. You know what? What power and authority at the fingertips of God. But will you also just now consider the love that a rainbow shows us? You know, consider the love. This rainbow tells us of God's common grace, doesn't it? You know, it shows us that the love that God has even for unrepentant sinners. You know, it's not saving love. But it is love nonetheless. You know, man can reject God. Man can blaspheme God. Agnostics can doubt God. Atheists can spit venom at God and can do it time and time and time again. And all the while what happens? A rainbow appears overhead. A rainbow that points to God's age of preservation. You see, friends, God entered into covenant with Noah. And see, because of that, I can say to you, 
this morning, without any sort of doubt or without any hesitation at all, I can say to you that God loves you. I mean, look at the rainbow. Think about the rainbow. God loves you. He loves the world so much that he gave his one and only son. So perhaps maybe today it is time that you bow and come to know not just this sort of common preserving love of God. Perhaps you need to bow before your creator and come to know the eternal and the saving love of Jesus Christ. So we've seen the two sides of the covenant. You know, we've seen what man has to do, don't we? This agreement, this treaty, what man has to do. And we've seen what God promises to do because of that. And we're just going to close with this. We're just going to close very briefly by, by looking at the features of the covenant. <clears throat> because there's two essential elements that are going on here. There's two ingredients here in this covenant that we've got to grasp and if we grasp they blow our minds I tell you now over the years over the centuries what's happened is that scholars have battled about where the covenant begins okay some people say it begins in Genesis chapter 9 verse 8 where God says I now establish my covenant. So some people think that. Some people think it begins at the beginning of the chapter, in verse 1, that that's the beginning of the covenant. But I want to show you something. I want to show you that this covenant here is bracketed. That there's an inclusio. That there's kind of bookends to this covenant, if you like. See, the end of chapter 8 says the same thing as the end of this section on covenant. See, both, both things, the end of chapter 8 and the end of this section, both have the same promise. Both have God say, never again, never again will I destroy the earth. So if we want to find the beginning of the covenant, we don't go to verse 8 of chapter 9, no. We don't go to verse 1 chapter eight of chapter 9. We go all the way back to the end of chapter 8. And I hear you say, Andy, so what? What's the significance of that? Well, just look and think about what sparks this covenant. What leads to God favoring man? What leads to God entering into this covenant with Noah? Do you see it? The end of chapter 8, what is it? It's the altar, isn't it? It's the sacrifice that Noah makes toward God. That's what leads to God establishing this covenant with man. As someone said before me, this is a great quote. Someone said this, This whole covenant should be seen through the smoke of Noah's sacrifice to God. So sacrifice is one of the crucial ingredients. But there's a, there's a second thing. There's something else here. There's something amazing. And with this, we close. 
Consider, if you will, that blood is emphasised all the way through Genesis chapter 9. Blood. You see, it doesn't just say, you know, it doesn't just say eat the animals, does it? You know, as part of the commission. It doesn't say that. No, blood is emphasised. It says, eat anything except those with the life blood in them. Then instead of sim- simply saying, you know, don't kill a fellow human being, that's, that's not the prohibition, is it? It says, for your life blood, I will demand accounting. It says, whoever sheds the blood of man, his blood will be shed. The blood has been emphasized. The blood? Now why? Why is blood important? For two reasons. One, for the Hebrews, blood was where the life force was. For Hebrews, blood was all important. Leviticus 17 says, for the life of a creature is in its blood. Second reason, it was the blood that made an atonement for sin. That's why all those that's why all those Old Testament sacrifices had to die. Because it was blood. It was blood that had to be spilt. It was blood that made an atonement. It was blood that mattered. So we've got sacrifice and we've got blood that are the two important ingredients. And I hope from the bottom of my heart this morning, I hope that you see that the two essential ingredients here, that they point forward. And they point forward to the two essential ingredients of the ultimate covenant, the covenant of grace, where God promises to forgive your sin. How? Through the sacrifice And through the spilt blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. So I ask you this morning, is today an exciting day for you? Is it? You know, perhaps as you sit there this morning, have you had the veil removed from your eyes by the Holy Spirit? Do you see that Genesis 9 is pointing you forward into the loving arms of Jesus Christ? The one, the one who went to the executioner's chair, the one who faced the death penalty. For you. Is today an exciting day? I hope your heart is filled with gratefulness. Because Christ has died. And he has died for you. Let's pray.